So if you hate us, have integrity and come to us directly. We're, we're the, do the biblical thing. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we're going to be talking about homelessness, and for our segment, we're going to be bringing back 10 questions. The topic this week is actually inspired by an encounter that Mona had on a subway train. So, Mona, why don't you go ahead and kind of explain to us what happened? So, I was on the bus the other day, a few months ago, and this conversation still rings around in my head often um, because, you know, okay, so before we tell this story, Jeff... You know, if we <laughs> just throw out some horrible stereotypes, when you see someone in the street who is really ragged and doesn't have good hygiene and maybe is doing some strange social behaviors or asking for money, what's the first thing you think? Hmm. That is. It's a hard question. That is a hard question. I think that it varies. I, I feel like if I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I think I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I'm stumbling over my words and I have no idea really how to engage that. You know, I, you see all these stories, like these uh, videos that have been propping up lately. I don't know who does them, but like this guy, he'll have someone go to a homeless person and give him like a pizza or whatever. And then another person will come and this is all staged. And another person will come and be like, man, I'm really down on my luck. And, you know, do you mind if I have some food? And they'll show like the homeless person giving them food and sharing, even though they don't have. And I, I, I see kind of what they're trying to do there, like to kind of break down the stereotypes a little bit. But then at the same time, I feel like they're sort of exploiting that person in a way. Um, so <laughs> all that to say is, I, I don't know, it, it varies. The area that I live in really uh, has a, a pretty prominent um, homelessness issue problem. I don't want to say problem, but uh, there's a lot of people without homes in our area and uh, we see it on a regular basis. And there are times where I'll see a cop harassing them and it pisses me off. And then there'll be, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to turn it over to you to tell me what to think. No, well, the, <laughs> I don't want to tell you what to think, but it's interesting. You say cops harassing them because in a lot of places um, it is, illegal to squat in a public park or you know spend the night on the street like you it is actually illegal to be homeless it's yeah well they've instituted a thing where i live where now downtown they have um it's a city ordinance i think but they have cops on bicycles going up and down the main drag and no one is allowed to panhandle in one place for more than 30 minutes so then they come by and they check and if they're they're still there they they kick them off and they've tried to do things to kind of sort of balance it out where they've set up um, our area has this downtown where there's a lot of parking meters and they set up designated like parking like meters where people can donate to homelessness in the area. Um, but then there was also, yeah, it is. It's kind of a it's a it's a bit of a balance. But then the city kind of double speaks a little bit because we have this one man who has this large area. It's a large farm area. And he was allowing people to park their RVs on his property um, because they didn't have a place to go. And he was like, well, I'll just do that. And he got, 
you know, the whole community felt like it was coming against him and he had to do all this other stuff. He ended up having to like, I don't know if he had to, but he wanted to continue to provide the service for people. So he, his only option was to build like a housing area. So he built like this dormitory on his property for people to sleep there in regulation to try to keep that going. But he couldn't even allow people to park on his property. What? Wow. It is fascinating to think though, like if you're, if you're really down on your luck and we'll talk about that in a minute, if you literally have nowhere to go, if you have no family to live with, if you have nowhere to live, something happens, which we'll, again, we'll talk about, but like where this is maybe the dumbest question ever asked, but if you have nowhere to go, where, where are you supposed to go? That's a good question. Cause I feel like in, in my area, you're not allowed to go anywhere unless not, you have a place to stay. You're not allowed to go. And, yeah. and speaking of not being not allowed to go, you can't even use bathrooms or, you know, have hygiene, you know, so Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those sights and smells are offensive to those of us who have like the benefit of having a home and a place to land, but um anyway, okay, so we'll get on to into that in minutes. So this is really interesting to kind of open up these areas of our thinking of like, okay, how do we conceive of homelessness? What do we think of when we see a homeless person? I if we're being completely honest in this conversation, when I see someone who is homeless, I often don't feel safe and I will not make eye contact and really not acknowledge them because I don't want to be asked for money. I really don't have any money to give them. And so um, I have heard anecdotally that it's very difficult to not be acknowledged. Um, But I think of all the populations and the demographics in the country, it's probably as far as like objectified people groups, like people without homes probably are up at the top of the list. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would definitely say that. They become part of the, the structures of the architecture of the city. They become a fixture, you know, like someone who's moving around, but might as well be like a concrete bench as far as like we're concerned, not no personality, no history, no background, just like, yeah. Or even just used as a token to feel good, you know? Like, um, you know, when we're in our downtown area and we go out to eat and we have extra food, like the default is, oh, well, I'm not going to eat this. We can just give it to a homeless person on the way to the car, which is certainly not because it's usually my wife that suggests that. And that's certainly not coming from any other place. But the fact that my wife is an amazing person and genuinely cares about people, but it's still like a default, like how many times in church have we been sitting there with like a youth group or whatever and we think, well, what can we do in our community? Let's do something for the homeless. And I can't tell you how many times um, giving money to a homeless person was used as an anecdote for, you know, the least of these or whatever. Like it's, it seems to just be like the, the default charity thing. But then when confronted, like you're talking about in real situations, I do the same thing. Like I don't, I don't make eye contact. I kind of move forward, especially if I don't have money. I don't want to have to say I don't have anything. It's really hard not to decide in your mind what that person's motivations are. Yeah, it, it is hard not to stereotype them and, and to think like, you know, this person's not as much of a person as I'm a person. Like they don't, it, mm. that's, that's a terrible thing to say. But like, I think most of us, if we're really being honest with ourselves, like we really honestly believe that like this person doesn't have, is not worth talking to. They probably, you know, have too many issues and I don't, you know, and I say that because recently I was walking to work and a young man my age was talking having a conversation with a man who was clearly homeless and I was shocked to see the two of them speaking to each other at length. That's how unusual it is for these two groups to really actually interact and get to know each other. So, okay. Anyway, I was on the bus minding my own business and I start hearing these two older women talking loudly. Like they were sitting across the bus from each other and talking kind of towards each other. 
I couldn't figure out if they were friends or what, but um, I, I got on the bus and they were kind of already, they weren't arguing, but they were talking He kind of intensely. And uh, I hear the one woman say to the other, and, and again, I'm writing this, I start writing this conversation down because it's very, it starts becoming really interesting to me. And I don't know, you know, who's in what situation. I don't know what the relationship is, but they're, they're talking to each other. And the one woman says to the other, you, you know, homelessness is very hard to get out of. It's very expensive. Imagine the expense of getting almost every meal eating out like a tourist. Who tells you these things like homeless people don't want to work or go to school? Be homeless, then come back and talk to me, she says. And the other lady says to her, I don't intend to be homeless. And the first lady says, well, you think you don't, but how do you know? And there's this really long, awkward pause because I think this lady genuinely had never thought about the possibility of herself being homeless. Um, but so eventually this, you know, the second lady says, well, our church feeds people every week. And the first lady comes back quickly and said, people don't need a fish. They need a place. And there was another long, awkward pause. As like this reality sinking in of like, I'm glad, you know, it's nice your church feeds people once a week, but people can't survive on once a week. They need a place to go. Um, so the first lady continues and she says, there's always a good woman in the church who wants to help, but there's another one in the corner who says, but one of them stole from me once. Don't help them. We don't steal and we get out before we are asked to leave. We aren't stupid. We know how to survive, but we get tired of saying pretty, please. We get tired. I was completely floored. Like I'm still moved to tears just thinking about this exchange, just thinking about how self-aware this population is. And it, there's a rap out there that people without homes aren't aware of their situation, aren't aware of how their situation affects other people. But just the the phrase that sticks out to me is that we get out we get out before we are asked to leave. That the idea of outwearing your welcome. And not having a place to welcome people into is a fascinating and tragic situation to find yourself in. And learning all of the facts and statistics, if you actually do research into what causes homelessness, it's quite often, seriously, I'm serious, statistically, the the statistics on the fact that people just made really stupid decisions or like got addicted to hard drugs and that's why they're homeless is very slim. The higher stats, much, much higher are mental illness, lack of health care, unemployment, being a veteran, um, divorce and domestic abuse and healthcare crises, um, any kind of personal crisis, death in the family. Um, I mean, the myriad of things that cause people to lose their home, like it, it, it's usually not one thing. It's usually one event that causes a horrible domino effect that ends. Oftentimes the end of that domino effect is addiction and substance abuse because people are so traumatized and in pain and stressed out that they're looking for relief from that. And therefore they often get addicted to alcohol. Does that make sense? It's yeah. not, that doesn't come first in the line. Yeah. So a lot of times you talk to people and they're like, well, I don't have sympathy for, you know, the drunk dude under the bridge who's always asking me for money to buy booze. I don't have sympathy for them. 
But if you think about that in the last of six of a succession of events, a long succession of events, oh, being an ex-con, I forgot to mention that's a big one. Being an ex-cons almost can almost never find employment. So veterans, ex-cons, people with mental health issues, like these are all people who who need help in society. They're people who need help rehabilitating and we don't provide them help. Fascinatingly, if you add the complication of family, so people without homes often have kids. They don't have access to proper medical care. There's a really high instances of rape and sexual abuse on the streets. So there's a higher rate of pregnancy. So families, like I live in Massachusetts, recent figures this summer, there are 3,800 families with kids living in in the shelter program. So we're talking like 10,000 people, like a vast number of children. So what they do typically is they put them in shelters Um, The families often, the women in the families and the children often get priority versus if you're a male person without a home, you are kind of like left to fend for yourself. And in a winter, like as cold as Massachusetts, you're kind of just put out there because the shelter program is so jam-packed and they keep closing shelters because of budget cuts. Families often get put in shelters, but like there's nowhere for the kids to play and to have a normal life because they're still, the kids are still going to school when this is happening. Um, And often it's really not safe because there are a small percentage of people who are very rough and tumble who are not safe for kids to be around. So a lot of times the state will put those families up in motels or hotels. And at this point in the conversation, invariably someone in the room goes, whoa, they've got it great. They get to live in a hotel. That's just the posh life. The state just pays for them to have hotel, a hotel. Um, okay. Let's pause there. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some reactions here. Cause I feel like I'm kind of on a diatribe here. So, so people without homes find themselves out in their luck. A lot of times, the vast majority of the time, it's not people's fault. Most people would prefer to have the home, a home that they can pay for. Mm-hmm. and have the pride of their own home. The state often will provide people homes because it's actually a lot cheaper to do that than wait for people to, you know, get really sick on the streets and have to go to the medical, the ER and not be able to pay for it. So it's a lot it's a, actually a public health risk to have people out in the streets without homes, so the state pays preventatively for them to have a place to go. So But not anyway. often. Like I mean, that's actually what was in back in December, Utah like reduce their homelessness by like 90, 90% or something like that because they thought of the novel concept of actually providing homes for people so they can get kind of on their feet and how that they've seen, they've seen the chronic homelessness problem like substantially decrease, but not a lot of people are doing that. Not a lot of cities or areas are doing that. They're figuring out ways that they don't disrupt the people that are already there. Like you're right. Like it's a simple economic solution. Like it's cheaper to give them the home than it is to try to do all these other stuff, but not a lot of people are doing that. Yeah, because I mean, you have the whole argument about entitlement. And I'm kind of sympathetic to that. Like you want to encourage people to work and to pave their own way. But go back to what this woman on the bus said. Homelessness is very expensive to get out of. You are living like a tourist all the time. And all of us know the, (laughs) the struggle of going on a trip and not quite budgeting enough money to eat out every single meal, you know, and not being able to find nutritious food. Mm -hmm. But that entitlement thing bothers me as well, because that is, I I hate that that is attached by a lot of people to these services that are providing something for people because 
I'll, I'll talk to people who are, you know, probably more conservative in the way that they look at the world and they'll say, you know, well, my friend works in the welfare office or my friend works in this office and they see this all the time. And I was like, well, of course they do because where else are people who are going to take advantage of the system go? They're going to go to that place. The good people who are trying to make it on their own, they're going to avoid that place at all costs because they're trying to do what is right before they have to ask for help. You know, if you go into shark infested waters and you're like, man, the ocean's filled with water. No, you're going to a place that's concentrated for that particular thing. But that does not mean that the rest of the ocean is filled with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And if people have learned that the only way to survive, if society in this world and they've gotten a bad deck of cards, if they've learned that the only way for them to survive is to be manipulative and to suck like dry the resources and opportunities that they can get because they're, they don't know how else to survive. Like we as, as a society have like effectively taught them that, that like you have to be that scrappy to survive. Right. And I, I have heard this argument that if we take the shame out of public assistance, like housing programs or welfare stuff, like people just abuse it. Um, but honestly, study after study show that like the abuse of those systems is really not nearly as high as the media would have you think. Not even close. Like the whole, not even close. Not even close. Like they've done these extensive studies on like for like drug tests and like welfare abuse and like all a lot of times it's like seriously only like one percent or two percent of those populations, a very small percentage, yeah, actually tries to work that system and take advantage of it. The rest of those folks, the ninety-eight percent of those folks, are scared out of their minds because they're afraid they're going to die. Yeah. Last last statistic I read was somewhere around eighty percent of people are on these programs temporarily. Like they don't stay on them. Yeah. Less than two years. Yeah. Less than two years. Um, it, it what for, for food, for food stamps. Yeah. Be- yeah. Because again, like they're, they're meant to be safety nets. Like that, that's the whole, it's, they're not entitlement programs. It, they are entitlement programs. Okay. Let's, let's just give people that. Yes. They're entitlement programs. You're entitled in a free and wonderful democracy in one of the strongest economies in the world. You're entitled when you're down on your luck to have some help and to some you're, dignity, some, and you know, dignity and that help. Yeah. You're entitled to that as a, as a citizen or even a participant in this society. But more than that, you're entitled to a safety net. You're entitled to a safety net if things go horribly wrong and you lose everything that you're not going to die. You know, so I just I don't know. The the rhetoric around this really bothers me. But again, like there's this idea that if we get rid of the shame of it, that people will take advantage of it. And I, I just want to say, you know, I, I think even if there's not a stigma attached to receiving assistant how assisted housing or assistant food stamps or whatever uh, government assistant programs that exist, like even if there's not a stigma attached to it, I think most people would prefer to have the pride of paying their own way and getting themselves financially stable and not having to depend on anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Most people, most people want to give their kids nutritious food and not have to ask for help with that. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a parent. That's just what a parent does. Well, anyway, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. For sure. Um, These are complex issues. Like I, I would be as bold as saying that we all, all the things that you're saying and the statistics that you're putting out there, probably neither of us have ever doubted in our mind, but we doubted in that moment when we're confronted with the issue itself. Like when a face is placed to these things, that's when the, like, you know, the rubber meets the road. Like how are we actually going to really work through these things. And I wonder if just part of our insecurity in dealing with it is just not knowing how to, not knowing the specific things to do, not knowing who's responsible, who's 
problem is it? You know, you talk about veterans being a large portion or a large population of those that are homeless. Like that's a very clear issue. I and mean, when we talked about this, when we talked about uh, the war episode, our very second episode, like that is something that the government itself has created. They created that problem. They sent people off to war and then didn't provide for anything for them after. And we've seen this, we've seen it not just with veterans, but we've seen it with, um, you know, John Stewart's whole crusade with the the firefighters and policemen from 9-11 and how the government is still not providing for them long-term care for the things that they did for people and for the country. And I think that that is, you know, when we talk, if we're going to talk about entitlement, you know, who's entitled to do what and who's entitled to receive what, there's some bigger questions that are surrounding those things as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I, I think the idea of like giving your life for your country if you survive, if you don't die in the trenches or in the fire or in the shootout, like, but you're still like mentally damaged from like severe PTSD and you can't hold down jobs and you can't hold down relationships, like you have still given your life for your country. Yeah. And your country should give you life in return. Yeah. I I have personally undergone a major change in my thinking about people without homes. And I use the word people without homes because the word homeless person is so labely and objectifying that I try not to use that you know, homelessness as like an ism of like a reality that people experience. That's one thing. But like to call someone a homeless person is like saying like they're like inherently lacking as a human, right? So I try to use the words and other people have like educated me on this saying people without homes. Like I don't personally own a car right now. I'm a person without a car. I'm not carless as like an inherent trait of my person, right? I don't have a car. Just like people who don't have homes don't have a home. So that's that's kind of I'm trying to change my language and hopefully change my thinking, which is usually a good strategy. You know, and there there really is, I think, a concept in our country, and this goes back a long time ago. Um, you know, I, I really recently read a really interesting article we can post in the show notes by a Berkeley professor about the link between morality and working hard. Like that we have a concept that if you work hard, you are inherently a good person. If you don't work hard, you're not. That comes from a Protestant religious background. That's a theological idea that's really embedded itself in the way that we you know, view ourselves as 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 people in this country. Yeah, but um, it's also embedded itself in the rhetoric of a political ideology that also downplays mediocre jobs like working at fast food and doesn't provide people who actually work hard with the money to match the effort that they're putting into the work that they have in front of them. Yeah, I... <laughs> Man, I could talk. So, I could talk for a bit about that. Yeah, like, like you know, there, there's a lot coming from the right about um, this kind of nostalgia from the 1950s. Um, you know, we should just go back to the good old days when we had family values. But you know, in the 1950s, like millionaires were taxed above 90 percent. We had decent jobs for people. There was a minimum wage high enough to send people to college. College was free for the most part because of the GI Bill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people could afford to buy houses on one on one family income. So we had an economic milieu that allowed for a lot more financial opportunity than currently we have today. And its um, foundation was laid in social programs. 
Just yes, saying. it was. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was in social programs in the New Deal. And then fast forward 40 years and we have the Reagan era and we have de- literal demonization of quote unquote welfare queens. Like this was a re- this was a political strategy in the 80s. I'm not making this up. I, I wish I could make this up. This is a political strategy in the 80s to garner sympathy for conservative policy and deregulation to say, well, there's to just promote this idea that there's this ambiguous demographic out there abusing welfare and driving Cadillacs while getting checks from the government. I mean, it really, it really was like a total fabrication, but the term welfare queen comes from that era. And this idea of like the single mother with a bunch of kids irresponsibly driving Cadillacs on the government's dime. And that idea has never quite gone away in our social imagination. No, it hasn't. It's still there. And then you, you add on top of that, the whole war on drugs. So not only are they doing that, but then they're also, you know, sniffing cocaine and doing whatever, which you know, in the 80s, most of the drugs was coming out of Wall Street, the very people that were propped up as the people. <laughs> There's it's still I, it still is. Yeah. Still is. So so people without homes, like they get they get the welfare stigma. They get the uh, alcohol and addiction stigma. They get the drug stigma. They get the criminal stigma. They get all the stigmas, man. They get it all. Like, this is <laughs> heaped on there. You know, a, a lot of times there's racial stigma. Like, you know, people of color who are homeless, like, obviously they're lazy. You know, like, mm-hmm. where, yeah. where is this coming from? Well, it comes from a specific place. This is like a deliberate political posturing from one American party to try to win elections. Seriously. I, I Again, I can't make this up. So, okay. Well, and the bottom this. fell out, right? Like right after Reagan's presidency, we hit a recession. Right after eight years of Bush's presidency, we hit a recession. Like that, it bottoms out. It just, it doesn't, it's not sustainable. Yeah, it's not, it's not sustainable. Trickle down, I mean, in in my in my opinion. Okay, so if you have serious qualms with this and you are a trickle down fanatic and want to come on the show and debate us, hey, get on here. Send us an email. Please, but yeah, like, because I think we're we're both the first to recognize that we are not economic not gurus. Experts, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the whole idea that you would intentionally renew, remove a safety net for desperate people in order to motivate them to work harder to survive doesn't make logical sense. And that's what I'm really honestly trying yeah. to debunk in this whole episode. That doesn't make sense. Like, seriously, think about it. Okay, so I'm talking to this nonprofit person who works in raising money. So asking very wealthy, often conservative wealthy people who have really benefited from deregulation and benefited from tax breaks for the wealthy and asking them for money to fight homelessness. And this person was telling me kind of their strategy for when they walk into these rooms full of these donors, what they say to them, especially about the homeless families, like like children without homes. Children in particular. And again, like children, really, if you want to talk about people who don't have responsibility and not having a home, like kids don't make financial decisions, Yeah, you know? So I was asking him how he gets donors to emotionally connect with the need to give money to this organization that helps place families in homes. And he said, this is what I tell people. When I, he said, when I was growing up, I had five brothers and sisters, and every day after school, we would scamper home, and we would sit at the dinner table, and we would all do our homework, sometimes before dinner, sometimes after dinner, but like invariably, once a day, 
Several times a week, I would be sitting at the table with my siblings. We would be doing our homework and we'd be laughing and we'd be eating snacks and we would be doing our homework at that table all through my growing up years. He said, you know, a lot of people think this is going back to the hotel motel thing that I mentioned earlier. You know, oh, we'll just put people without homes up in a hotel. Like they're just leeching off the government. He's like, no, really think about what that means. You have one family sharing one room, not having a kitchen, often putting their food in the bathtub with ice to keep it cold, not having those kids, not having any place to play, like except maybe a parking lot because often they're like motor hotels or driving hotels. They don't have a place to play. They don't have other kids to play with. And most importantly, they don't have a dining room table to do their homework. They don't have anywhere to do their homework. And I was like, holy smokes. And, you know, I'm thinking in my imagination of like, you know, all the times that maybe I've stayed in a hotel and I haven't been able to just cook a meal, like just cook a meal, like have a stove to cook a meal, like a real actual meal, have no place to store fresh ingredients. Like thinking of family of even a family of four, like two mom, two kids and, and two parents, like trying to cook on a hot plate and eat out of mini fridge for a long period of time, not having anywhere to really gather and share a meal together. And so this whole, this guy's whole rhetorical strategy approaching really high net worth conservative donors was like, please, can we just get these kids a table? to do their homework and not punish them later in life for not doing their homework and dropping out of school. Like we punish people for not doing their homework, but we don't give them anywhere to do their homework. We're talking about thousands of children, thousands and thousands and thousands. And like, that's just Massachusetts, like thousands of children. We're talking about like across the country, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of kids, like having to, and the other thing he said was like, most kids like look forward to school getting out so they can go home and be comfortable. These kids dread school getting out because they don't have anywhere to go to go be comfortable. So it really seriously puts a different light on this whole thing, you know? Yeah. And well, then you add on top of that, I mean, kids, even up until teenagers can be pretty cruel. And if what if people at your school find out your family is homeless or living out of a hotel or whatever, like there's that added pressure that would just cause you to shut down. Like it really, it dehabilitates more than just your economic status, but your social status and your ability to be confident in who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing I found out, this is completely heartbreaking to me, but um, a lot of times the kids are afraid of gym in particular because think about not having laundry services. Like most hotels charge for laundry services. Where are you going to do your laundry? Um, and if you don't have any money to pay for laundry, so the kids don't have clean underwear and they're afraid to change in front of their their cohort. So um, the, it's the things we don't think about. You know, a lot of times like food and clothing drives, they'll have like canned goods that are kind of hard to prepare and they'll have clothes, but not fresh underwear and socks. So it's a lot of times the minutia that end up being the biggest burden that people who are do-gooders don't think fully about and they don't get to know the people they're serving well enough to know what they actually need and they don't actually ask what they need. So again, it's the whole like people don't need a fish. They need a place. They need a place to go. And if you're going to a job, I mean, just man, the the things that I've been learning about this are just spectacular. If you're going to a job interview and you don't have a home to go like take a shower and you don't have like fresh clothes to wear, how are you going to ace that job interview if you can't look your best? And how are they going to let you know that you got the job if you have no phone, nothing, no way to get 
contacted. How? Yeah. Again, like homelessness and this kind of poverty that like millions of people experience. It's like it's not something that people choose. It's like it's like a sticky fly trap that once you get stuck to it, it's almost impossible to get out of. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible. It's so expensive and so hard that you seriously have to have someone come around and like change your life to get out of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you've said several times throughout this conversation, like, you know, the rhetoric around this is very important. And I agree 100%. I don't think we put enough stock in the rhetoric that we use. I mean, it is all over the place right now, especially since we're in the midst of, of a pretty volatile political season. But that that rhetoric forms opinions because very rarely do people actually go through and do the work to, you know, do the research on the stuff that they say. It is all about rhetoric. Even on Facebook, you know, you like you have, I feel like Facebook should make it a requirement for everyone if they're going to put a meme up to have a footnote section, you know, because half the time it's not true. It's just based off of I'm, I'm appealing to you through this rhetoric that supports an idea that you already have in your mind. And I'm just going to keep doing that over and over and over and over again. It's social engineering and we all do it. I mean, both sides do it, but oh, that's, yeah. that's the problem is that we... And then we decry things like political correctness because we should be able to say it how it is. But you're not saying it how it is. You're saying it how you want it to be. And that is not how it is. And I think that although political correctness can have everything like that can be a double-edged sword, I think it's important for us to be careful about the words that we speak. If our rhetoric is shaping our opinion on real people and causing us to be callous against people who are struggling and hurting, let alone children who are struggling and hurting. And, you know, for an adult, if they have a rough patch, they can probably get over it. But you are you are imprinting formative years on these children yeah. that are going to last way longer than a parent who's just having a season that's difficult. Right. Absolutely. Like that kid's going to take that through their entire life, that that's like who they are. Exactly. Here's the most interesting thing. You know, we're spending so much money. We're spending so much money. If you want to talk about like financial burden and financial costs of like welfare welfare programs, we're spending so much money on people with like horrible preventative diseases, complete pandemics of like diabetes and heart failure and all kinds of like seriously like legit, easily preventable diseases um, because people can't afford food, like basic amenities and homelessness. And what healthcare professionals are coming out with in the last couple of years, and this is really fascinating. If you want more information on like poverty and hunger in particular, go back and listen to our episode with Alison Bovell on food insecurity. Um, health professionals are now saying like, hey, like it's a public health crisis that we let people be in ho- poverty. And it, it's not only a public health care crisis, but it's an expensive public health care crisis. Like people are going to the ER. They don't have insurance. They got, you know, the taxpayers have to pick up the bill for preventative things if they could, for a fraction of the cost, just be provided for earlier. So all that to say, what what's coming out is the language that's coming out right now from the healthcare sector is saying is the term toxic stress and like survival insecurity. Toxic stress meaning um, sometimes it's not even not having a home that's the most stressful. It's the possibility of not having a home. Once you don't have a home, like that's a different story. But if you ha- if you're on the brink of not having a home, if you can barely make rent, and you're having to think about clandestine ways or you know of of making ends meet, 
like that stress of having to even think about that, of not being sure if you can even put good food on the table or pay your bills, that stress is like the equivalent of taking years off your life. It's horrible for you physically and emotionally and mentally, all of the above. So it's it's not just people without homes that we really need to be thinking about. It's people who might be without homes in the near future. Um, it's what they call the marginally um, home housing insecure or the housing insecure. So this issue is so freaking complicated is what I'm trying to get across. And I think Jeff, you're trying to get across as well. And so don't just think about the people who don't have, but the people who might not have soon and what they might be going through and what, you know, the stress of not being able to provide for your children and, and the feelings that are associated with that and the health risks that are associated with that. All kinds of horrible health things happen when, you're, when your body and your mind are placed under that kind of strain. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, and I think maybe even using the word issue simplifies everything. Like, cause we compartmentalize this issue, this issue, this issue, but you're talking and the stuff you're throwing out there are, is a hundred percent correct. Like this isn't a homeless issue. This is, isn't just a health issue. This is all these things. Like it's a, it's everything. Like we can't, we can't simplify any one issue to one thing because then our, our, our solutions will be simplified and nothing will actually get done. And we'll just keep running around this hamster wheel of nothing being accomplished and people not being provided for in the way that they should. You're absolutely right. And I was speaking to a doctor just today who works on food insecurity and she was like, you know, so often like we get into language of othering, but if we can start thinking about this as like my neighbor and like me, like my society is not healthy because we allow people to be in this kind of object poverty without helping them get out of it, not just giving them a meal or two, but like literally helping them get out and prevent it. Um, you know, this is an us issue. This is not an, mm-hmm. a them issue. This is us. This is our neighbors. Yeah. That's why we have more and more this. people talking about holistic health care. You know, you have yeah. people that are coming in to doctor's offices and if a doctor can see just beyond the medical thing, like, oh, maybe there's something at home that's causing the stress. Like these solutions are layered and just as the problems are. They they are. And they're complicated. And like, again, we, we've really gone into like in this episode, like not really proposing solutions, but um, but identifying like problems and stereotypes that like we ourselves have, like I have them, like Jeff has said, he has them. Like, we're not perfect in this, but I'm trying to change my thinking. And I, I honestly think that the only solution to this is going to be in the policy realm. It's not, the nonprofits can provide triage. They can provide like immediate help for like really like now needs, but they can't give people a place to go in the long term so much like they they just can't they don't have the capacity most churches and nonprofits have the ability to like provide a meal a week which is like stellar that's a lot and that's great that's great that people do that but people need to eat more than once a week and we need to be thinking about long-term solutions to prevent these things from happening in an ongoing way absolutely and the problem is that both sides of the fence their rhetoric is simplistic and that means nothing's gonna get done they really when we're talking about the complexity of these factors it's not just it's again it not only is it not making people people making bad decisions not only is it unemployment but it's like nowadays the our economy is going toward contract labor instead of full time so it used to be okay decades ago it was that you get a full time job you get benefits you get a pension after you retire oh man you get a pension and you get social security nowadays it's 
uh, or uh, 10 years ago, it was you get a full-time job, you get benefits, and you get social security. Pensions went away, especially after 2008. They, they kind of just went away. Nobody gets pensions anymore uh, unless you work like some kind of government obscure government job. Um, social security now is going away. So it's going from like full-time job and benefits to now the way jobs are structured is changing from full-time and benefits because healthcare is a mess right now to not even full-time, but contract work. We're talking about the Ubers and the Airbnbs and the economic situations where people are paid what, like what that seems like a lot of money, but they have no stability. They have no benefits. They have no perks and they can't, um, they have to pay that stuff out of pocket. So like they have the, they have the illusion of making more money, but they still can barely make ends meet and they don't really quite know why. So contract jobs have gone through the roof. Full-time jobs with benefits have decreased. So our unemployment is relatively stable, but the nature of the jobs that people can find is much, much, much different and harder to manage. So we're actually, right now, um, homelessness is increasing like a lot, like a concerning amount. Poverty is increasing a concerning amount because our economy is changing so rapidly that nobody can keep up. And people have to take all these side jobs and work all these side projects to just keep up with things. Um, so, I, you know, again, we're not economic experts, but I'm trying to say that like homelessness in particular is really, really, really complicated really complicated. And and you can't just look at raw numbers and raw solutions because a lot of times there's a ton of intersecting factors that all mishmash together. Absolutely. Why these perfect storms happen. Yeah. And you can't take those raw numbers. As, you can't take a snapshot of those raw numbers either. I was just listening to a podcast that interviewed the guy that was kind of responsible for the idea behind the welfare reform that happened in the late 90s under Clinton's administration. And he was in a part of California where he instituted this program where it was like basically like get a job was was kind of the central thing of it. He even had like even got musicians to make the CD to motivate people and talking about the value of work and all that kind of stuff. And in the short term, there was this like phenomenal decrease in people applying for welfare and how long that they were on it. Like it was just it was so revolutionary that it got to the White House and it was the basis for national reform, but it didn't have any longevity because the whole basis was just getting people to work, but not concentrating and worrying about the quality of that work. And you had more people in the long run that were worse off because they weren't, they didn't have a job that really provided, they were just working to work. And, you know, it's, that's part of that whole compromise that we have to have. You know, you have to have the right a lot of time talking about you need to work, you need to work, you need to work. But then also on the same side of their mouth, they're saying that family is important and it's the breakdown of the family. Well, how the hell are you supposed to keep a family together if there's only one parent and they have to work multiple jobs to even barely pay the rent? It's, it's ridiculous that, that we've become so polarized that there's like, larger and larger percentage of our country gets stuck in the middle of these these two I don't even say opinions but these two forms of rhetoric that that marginalize everyone till there's almost no one left. Oh, you're on something here. Look, for, serious. Okay, so think about even okay, let's 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 create a hypothetical hypothetical situation because I want to again show the domino effect because this is really really interesting. Imagine you have a two-parent home with two with three kids, okay? Average American home. Both parents work minimum wage jobs. Maybe both parents work two minimum wage jobs just to make ends meet and provide for those three kids to try to give those kids everything. 
those parents can't put good food on the table. Maybe. Let's say. They they can't put nutritious food on the table. The whole family just kind of has aches and pains and and eventually someone in the family gets really sick and needs a lot of medical care. The family can't afford any more than they're already paying out. So those medical bills tank the family financially, which causes incredible domestic stress, maybe a divorce, maybe abuse, like that kind of stress. Financial stress causes a ton of internal family strife. Give that a couple of years being in that situation and not having anyone around to help any family or anybody to help that family. That family is going to end up on the streets because they cannot pay their bills. They have nowhere to go. Like so so we're ha- we're talking about like hardworking people who have jobs and try to make the ends meet. They're living so close to the poverty line. They can't afford good food. Like good food honestly is like a big part of this. Someone gets sick and that's all it takes to start that domino train down the line. And pretty soon that family's like completely down and out and scattered and completely unstable like emotionally and mentally because they have nowhere to be and live. So it's this stuff. This is the story of this is an everyday story. This is an everyday occurrence now. You know, this is this is commonplace that 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 story happens to people all the time now that people who try to like you're saying, Jeff, like they're trying to work, you know, they're and if minimum wage is not it's especially if minimum wage is not high enough to keep up with cost of living. They're trying to work. They're trying to do their best, but they cannot. Like it, it's like the deck is stacked against them, and especially if they have health issues, like that topple. You know. Yeah, that that's why it. that the rhetoric is so powerful because number one, it's forming people's opinions, but it's forming opinions that aren't based in anyone's reality. So it's 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 double damaging because then you get in a place where you're stuck. What do you do? You know, a few weeks back when we had um when i interviewed amber about immigration law you know in that interview she said that basically like all the rhetoric around like hard working we want to bring the hard working immigrants into our country like she had to tell a client to declare bankruptcy and get into a little trouble so that you would be considered a hardship and you can get into our country like the rhetoric does not match the reality and the more and more we separate our cultural identity from how reality really works. I think the more in trouble we're going to be. And I don't think it's any more prevalent when it comes than when it comes to um, you know, homelessness and poverty and the things that we're talking about today. We have to like we have to be about real solutions, not solutions that just fit our rhetoric and ideology. Right. Homelessness is an increasingly important issue. And that's why I think it's really timely that we're talking about it. Like the numbers are going up. We are not flatlined in this. The the chances that you know personally somebody who will be without a home in your life are very high. We really need to think about as a country and as, you know, as people of faith how we think about this. You know, I really strongly believe that God is a God of home. Like I know that sounds really weird, but I think the idea of home, of a safe space is like, I think of that as God, like that is divine of having a place to go and rest your head that, you know, that could be a whole nother conversation, right? Like the son of man has no place to rest his head. Um, but- yeah, there's the practical parts of that. And then there's just the 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 place where home is where you can be you. You know, and if you like we've talked about like all these issues, especially with kids, like they can't be themselves because they're ashamed of themselves. And society has made them think that 
their whole place is ashamed. And then we've attached shame to a system of receiving help. So you can't be yourself in any place of, of shame. And, you know, when you talk about like this idea of what God is, you know, I, I, I go to, um, you know, Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, where it's like, in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. When we provide or are part of a solution for someone to be who they have been created to be, then we are experiencing the divine more than a prayer or a hymn or a church service. That is where, that's where God is. That is where that thing that we strive for, for peace and love and hope, that's where it's located. It's in located in the place by creating heaven on earth for people in whatever situation. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Psalm 91, um, that God will cover you with his, with, uh, I'll use inclusive language that God will cover you with God's feathers and under God's wings, you will find refuge. God's faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart, a refuge, a place of refuge and safety, a place of, um, of shieldedness. Like that is an image of home, like a mother bird covering the baby birds in a nest. That's a place of home. That's how God is described to us in the Christian faith, you know? And so to show people God is to show people home. And that's not just some ambiguous spiritual abstraction that like, you know, if you find the home of God in your heart, then suddenly you'll find material home in this world and you won't really need a real home. Okay. The people preaching that stuff have homes to go to. I'm sorry, but they do. They don't know what it's like to not have a home. If you really believe that, that the spiritual aspect is all that matters, okay, great. Give up your home. Go live on the streets for a while. See how that feels. You know, like yeah, that's absolutely. ridiculous. Absolutely. Well, I think so. that we can, I don't know, if we've kind of reached the end of this as far as like, <laughs> well, as far as like, I think they exhausted all the things that are probably on our heart and mind in regards to this particular issue. So um, I've not any... exhausted it. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but I really, I, 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 I'm sure you've heard the passion and the desperation. I, I, I've, I've wrestled with these issues because I don't know how, what my response should be. I, I feel like this knowledge is a burden. I don't mean like poor me kind of burden. It's so hard to have privilege, but I mean, like I want to, find something meaningful to do with this knowledge. And I hope that sharing this conversation with you all has meant something to you. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, if you have solutions or organizations that you feel like are doing like a really great job addressing this, or if you have experience with homelessness or, you know, you know, people who are homeless and have some insight for us, like, please share. We are, we are more than, more than happy to hear yeah. from you. Or even if you yourself work with homelessness on a regular basis and are, are a part of that in a real everyday in the trenches kind of way, we would love to hear from you. Um, so any comments you may have for this particular episode, you can do that at arenacast.com slash 76, or you can go to our uh, feedback page, arenacast.com slash feedback. And there are numerous ways you can get a hold of us, Facebook, Twitter, email, all of our stuff is located there on the website. So, um, yeah, let us know what you think, because obviously we don't have any answers for this. We have a lot of uh, feelings and, um, I don't know, whatever opinions about how to do this and the things that we need to be looking at. But at the end of the day, we're a little bit at a loss. Yep, that's a good way to put it. But I think sitting in the discomfort of it is important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because yeah. then that's that's going to, we hate the discomfort. And I think that's going to motivate us more than anything to try to find 
a real solution. Well, on, on the other side of the music, we will <laughs> we will attempt to answer questions that do have an answer with uh, our ten question segment. So we are going to be doing 10 questions. Well, initially, I remember when we first did this, we were going to do 20 questions. But because it was three hosts, it took a lot longer and went way crazier. So we actually re-recorded the segment. I think we even mentioned it in that episode and then brought it down to five. So I'm thinking because there's two of us, maybe we can meet in the middle and let's do 15 questions. 15? Okay. That sounds good. I hope, (laughs) yeah, I hope everybody's down with that. Uh, maybe you in your car can like shout at the radio, you know, no, you're not asking the right question. Yes, play along. And you'll have those of you listening <laughs> have the benefit of n- the the non-long awkward pauses because post-production is our magic here. Yeah, Jeff definitely edits out all the pauses. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're much more clever than we actually are. It does, are. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, do you, do you want to ask questions first or me? Yeah, I'll ask questions first. I'll start. Okay, so just... Just to recap, we have each picked a person, place, a thing, a noun, and we have to guess what that other person is thinking of through yes or no questions. And uh, yeah, so here we go. So is it a thing? Yes. Okay. Does it fit in your pocket? No. Okay. Are we are we doing robust yes or no? So like if I could be like, definitely not. You can do whatever you'd like. Okay, we're we're gonna do that to you know help uh, help you along. And this is a friendly game of fifteen questions. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so, what was that? La- I last that last question I asked was, it, "Does it fit in your pocket?" Does it fit in your pocket? And I said, "Definitely does not fit." Definitely in your pocket. does not. Definitely. So I'm not. taken by your emphatic definitely that it is much emphatic. bigger than something that could fit in your pocket. Exactly. Is it bigger than the average person? Yes, it is. Is there a particular room of a home or office where it usually resides? No. Um, does it have a primary use? Yes, it does. Hmm. I picked a hard one. I'm just letting you know. Is it something that the average person possesses? No. No. Definitely not. Okay. No. So that would be funny if 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 an average person had one of these. Oh. Clues all over the place. Just throwing them out there. Feeling so generous tonight. Hmm. Is this item typically, stereotypically gender specific? Unfortunately, yes. Although are there a lot of, you know, people of the opposite gender who would be able to partake in this thing? I'm, I hope I'm not throwing you off with this language because I, I don't want to say anything more specific than that. Okay. Is it, is it mainly associated with the female gender? Nope. No. Okay. That's nine. Is it something that is usually inside? No. 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 But I would say all all people benefit from this thing, even if they don't themselves use it. Is it a vehicle? Yes. That's 11. You got four more. Is it a motorcycle? Not a motorcycle. Hmm. <laughs> How would we all benefit from motorcycles? Because they're cool to look at. and they give us great youtube videos you got three you got three more 
Hmm. Well, then I'm going to guess, is it a bicycle? No, but a lot of people have bicycles. Yeah, but it benefits us all. Has a, but the average person oh, probably has yeah, a bicycle like, that's at true. home. I just wasted yeah, that one. Two, two more questions. Ah, okay. It's the vehicle. Oh, is it a bus? Is it what? Is a, it a bus? It's not a bus. Is it? It's not a bus. A train. Sorry, not a train. Oh, but well, you're in the ballpark. Um, the item was a forklift. Oh, you you got you got pretty dang close though. I'm gonna say. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't even got it because if I if I was gonna ask a clarifying question, it would have been, is it public transportation? It's pretty. It's pretty obscure. And you would have said yeah. no, and I, I that would have baffled me. Yeah, a vehicle that's not transportation. You're right, but like you're. Yeah, I guess you're transporting other things. But like we've all benefited from forklifts, right? If we didn't have forklifts, man, I don't know, Costco would just be completely unusable. <laughs> we have, and also another great source of amazingly hilarious YouTube videos. Yeah, again, I was gonna say like, yeah, it has a primary use, but I think people use all forklifts for all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, that was a good one. Thanks. I'm bummed I didn't get it. Thanks. All right, my turn. Is okay. it a thing? Yes. Yes, yes. Is it a, a thing that is found in the home? Yes. Yes. Okay. Is it a thing associated with food? No. Oh, okay. Nice try. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you too well. Okay. Is it... Uh, crap. <laughs> no. It's not crap. Great. No. <laughs> Please don't count that as a question. Um, would it be something found in the office? Yes. Ooh, we're, getting, ooh, we're banging on all cylinders here. Okay. Is it something found on your desk? I don't know how to answer that. So, yes. Is it but a I desk? Will, I will clarify not directly. No, it's not a desk. It's not a desk. Not directly. Okay. That's five. Five. Okay. Is it a chair? No. Okay. Oh, all right. Not direct. Not directly on your desk, but it's in your office, and it's a thing. Is it something that could fit on a desk? Yes. What? Uh, how many am I at? Seven. Seven. Okay. Is I got a lot. Of, I got six more questions. I'm just going to guess stuff. I think so. Okay. Is it no, a printer? That's 13. You have eight more guesses. No, it's not a printer. Okay. Uh, is it a lamp? No, it is <laughs> not a lamp. <laughs> I don't know. It's not something weird like a fax machine is, and that's not an actual guess. You don't have to answer that. Um, you're laughing because it is a fax machine, isn't it? Is I'm it a fax machine? Anything. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You have five more guesses. Okay. Um, is it something you used on a regular basis? Yes. Okay. Man, what what is this thing? Is it used for work? Yes. Yes. It, Among okay. many other things. Um is it Okay, it's not on your desk, but it could fit on the desk. So it's small-ish, and it's not a printer or a fax machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a chair, and it's not a desk, uh, and it's not a lamp. What else? I'm looking around my office trying to figure out. It's used for work. Is it a? F I'll give you a hint. Okay, give me a hint. Give me a hint. 
it is usually not in plain sight. Oh, man. Uh, what? <laughs> but it's not on your, it's not in plain sight. So it could be Correct. in your, it could be in your desk. It could be. Is it like a stapler or something? No. Uh, how many questions do I have left? One or two. I lost track. <laughs> Let's go with two. I'll give you two. Yes. <laughs> Um, all I can think about right now is office space. I do believe you have my stapler. <laughs> <laughs> Great movie. Um, okay. You know, we're just going to throw it out there. A whole punch. No. Oh, darn it. I only have one more. I don't know, man. This could like be anything. I'll give you a really, okay. Okay. Give me really a really big, big hint. Okay. Give me a big hint. It is hint. extremely relevant to the work that we are doing right now. Is it a microphone? No. No! What is it for real? It's a battery. That's really good. That's a really good one. Yeah. It wouldn't be on a desk. It could be in a desk. A battery. I know. I, even with 20 questions, I don't think I would have gotten that. <laughs> oh, we both stumped each other. We did. Foiled We're again. champions. Cha- I know. I don't think Wait, we've never won this game. Did we both set it up to where we both lost profoundly, but we're both champions at the same time? Because we both also stumped each other. We both won and lost, but we both won. Yes. We are the champions, my friend. We are about leveling the scales of justice. <laughs> we did it. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good place to end it this week. If you are listening and you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the show, you can go to irenacast.com slash support. And there are many ways there uh, to help support the show, including giving us a rating and review on whatever listening platform that you are currently on right now. Right now. Right so, now. Right now. Right help us out. What do now. you think? Tell us what you think. Five stars. Give us five. Don't you hate those apps that they're like, Rate us right now. Do you like us? Give us five stars. Do you like us? We want five stars. We want click this button. And we're never, ever going to leave you alone. Ever. Ever. We will leave you alone. We will. That's why we're giving you a general page to go to. Yeah, general. And we will leave it up to you. Even if you hate our... things, you can tell us. Yeah. Just tell us in an email, not in a review, because that affects us. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> so if you hate us, have integrity and come to us directly. We're <laughs> Do the biblical thing. <laughs> That's right. Matthew 18. Come on, people. <laughs> oh, Bible jokes. That's right. All right. Well, for this week, I'm Jeff. And I'm Mona. Thanks for joining our conversation. 